Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. Before you think about buying stocks, you should answer some basic questions about the market. How much do you trust corporate America? Do you need to invest in stocks? What do you expect to get from them? Are you a short-term or a long-term investor? How will you react to sudden price drops? Do you believe stocks are riskier than bonds? It's best to define your objectives and clarify your attitudes before you begin investing. You are a potential market victim if you're undecided and lack conviction. Personal preparation is as important as research when it comes to separating the successful stock picker from the chronic loser. In this section called Preparing to Invest, Peter Lynch will tell you what you're up against and how you can best ensure your own success. Chapter 1, The Making of a Stock Picker There's no such thing as a hereditary knack for picking stocks. Many would like to blame their losses on a genetic flaw. They believe others are somehow born to invest. My own history refutes that idea. There was no ticker tape above my cradle, and I didn't teethe on the stock pages. Most of my relatives distrusted the stock market. My mother was the youngest of seven children, and my aunts and uncles reached adulthood during the Great Depression. They had first-hand knowledge of the crash of 1929. Distrust of stocks was the prevailing American attitude throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s. During that time, the market tripled and then doubled again. This period was truly the greatest bull market in history, not the 1980s. My father died when I was 10, and my mother had to go to work. I wanted to help out, so I got a part-time job as a caddy. I began to understand the more important aspects of caddying when I was in high school. My clients were the presidents and CEOs of major corporations, including Gillette, Polaroid, and more to the point, Fidelity. In helping D. George Sullivan find his ball, I was helping myself to find a career. The golf course was the next best thing to being on the floor of a major exchange. After my clients sliced the drive, they would enthusiastically describe their latest investment. The happy stories I heard on the fairways made me rethink the family position that the stock market was a place to lose money. Many of my clients seemed to be making money in the stock market. I continued to caddy throughout high school and into college. I was on the liberal arts side of Boston College, avoiding all the required math and accounting courses, the normal preparations for business. Instead, I studied metaphysics, logic, and philosophy, along with history, psychology, and political science. Investing in stocks is an art, not a science. People trained to rigidly quantify everything are at a disadvantage. If stock picking could be quantified, you could rent time on the nearest Cray computer and make a fortune. But it doesn't work that way. I applied for a summer job at Fidelity during my senior year. This was at Mr. Sullivan's suggestion, Fidelity's president for whom I had caddied. I was thrilled to be hired at Fidelity. Some interns like me were put to work researching companies and writing reports just like the regular analysts. The whole business was suddenly demystified. Even a liberal arts major can analyze a stock. I went to Wharton after that interlude at Fidelity more skeptical than ever about the value of academic stock market theory. It seemed to me that most of what I was learning at Wharton could only help you fail in the investment business. I studied statistics, advanced calculus, and quantitative analysis. 
quantitative analysis taught me that the things I saw happening in Fidelity couldn't really be happening. It was also obvious that the Wharton professors who believe in academic theories weren't doing nearly as well as my new colleagues at Fidelity. So I cast my lot with the practitioners, and my distrust of theorizers continues to this day. After serving my ROTC-required two-year hitch in the Army, I rejoined Fidelity as a research analyst in 1969. I was promoted to Director of Research in 1974, and in May 1977, I took over the Fidelity Magellan Fund. Fidelity Magellan had 20 million in assets and 40 stocks in the portfolio. My boss suggested I reduce the number to 25. I listened politely and raised the number to 60. Six months later, to 100. Soon after that, to 150 stocks. I didn't do it to be contrary. I did it because I couldn't resist buying a bargain. There were bargains everywhere in those days. My portfolio continued to grow. Instead of settling for a couple of savings and loans, I bought them across the board after determining each was a promising investment. It wasn't enough for me to invest in one convenience store. I just had to buy Circle K, National Convenience, Shop and Go, and Hoppin' Foods, to mention a few. Pretty soon, I became known as the Will Rogers of equities, a man who never saw a stock he didn't like. Since I own 1400 now, I guess they have a point. Actually, Will Rogers may have offered the best bit of advice about stocks. He said, don't gamble. Take all your savings and buy some good stock. And hold it till it goes up. Then sell it. If it don't go up, don't buy it. Chapter 2. The Wall Street Oxymorons To the list of famous oxymorons, which includes military intelligence, learned professor, deafening silence, and jumbo shrimp, I'd add professional investing. It's important to view the profession with skepticism. Since 70% of the shares in major companies are controlled by institutions, you're competing against oxymorons whenever you buy or sell stock. This is a lucky break for you. There are many cultural, legal, and social barriers limiting the professionals. Of course, not all professionals are oxymoronic. There are innovative fund managers who invest as they please but the majority of the professional investors are hemmed in by the rules. The virtues of every spectacular stock I've found were so obvious that 99 out of 100 professionals would have wanted to add it to their portfolios. But for reasons I'm about to describe, they couldn't. There's simply too many obstacles between the professional investors and the 10 baggers. Take the Limited, for example. This company went public in 1969. Only one analyst followed the company for five years. A second analyst, Maggie Gilliam, noticed it in 1974. The first institution bought shares in the Limited in the summer of 1975 when there were 100 Limited stores open for business across the country. By 1979, 10 years after going public and having sustained a brilliant record, only two institutions had bought the stock. 400 Limited stores were doing a thriving business in 1981, and only six analysts were covering the company. When the stock hit its high of nine in 1983, long-term investors were up 18-fold from 1979. The price fell to $5 a share in 1984. The company was still doing well. Investors got another chance to buy in. As I'll explain later, if the stock is down but the fundamentals are good, 
it's best to hold on and better to buy more. It wasn't until 1985, with the stock back up to $15 a share, that analysts put the limit on their buy lists. Aggressive institutional buying helped send the shares up to over $52, far beyond what the fundamentals justified. By then, there were more than 30 analysts on the trail. Many arrived just in time to see the limited drop. Contrast the story of the limited with the 56 brokerage analysts normally covering IBM. You haven't spent much time in Wall Street if you think the average Wall Street professional is looking for reasons to buy exciting stocks. The rare professional has the guts to buy into an unknown company. In fact, choosing between the chance to make a large profit on an unknown company and the insurance of losing a small amount on an established company, most fund managers jump at the established company. Success is one thing, but it's more important not to look bad if you fail. There's an unwritten rule on Wall Street which states, "You'll never lose your job losing your client's money in IBM." Whenever fund managers do decide to buy something exciting, they may be held back by rules and regulations. Some bank trust departments won't allow stock purchases in companies with unions. Others won't invest in specific industry groups. It's the Securities and Exchange Commission making up the rules if it's not the mutual fund. For instance, the SEC says a mutual fund like Fidelity Magellan cannot own more than 10% of the shares in any company. It also says we cannot invest more than 5% of the fund's assets in any one stock. These restrictions are well-intentioned. They protect against the fund putting all its eggs in one basket. They also protect against the fund taking over a company. But the secondary result is that the larger funds are forced to limit themselves to the very large 500 companies out of the over 10,000 companies that are publicly traded. Fidelity Magellan has continued to compete successfully. For this, I have to thank the fast-growing stocks, the turnaround opportunities, and the out-of-favor enterprises I've found. The stocks I try to buy are the very stocks traditional fund managers try to overlook. In other words, I continue to think like an amateur as frequently as possible. An individual investor doesn't have to operate like an institution. You've got an edge already. The ten baggers come from beyond the boundaries of what's accepted in Wall Street. Great opportunities can be found in your neighborhood or workplace. Better yet, you can find them months or even years before the news reaches the professionals. Then again, maybe you shouldn't have anything to do with the stock market at all. This is an issue worth discussing, because the stock market demands conviction as surely as it victimizes the unconvinced. Chapter three. Is this gambling or what? Many investors took refuge in bonds after the October 1987 crash. The issue of stocks versus bonds should be resolved up front, or it will come up at frantic moments, like when the stock market is dropping. Investing in bonds, money markets, or CDs are forms of investing in debt, for which one is paid interest. Traditionally, bonds were sold in large denominations. Too large for the small investor. Bond funds were eventually invented. This made it possible for regular people to invest in debt, along with the tycoons. Later, the money market fund liberated former passbook savers from the captivity of the banks. It's one thing to prefer stocks to a stodgy savings account yielding five percent forever. It's quite another to prefer them to a money market where the yields rise immediately if the interest rates go up. 
Stocks have paid off about 30 times better than treasury bills in spite of crashes, depressions, wars, and recessions. There's a logical explanation for this. In stocks, you've got the company's growth on your side. You're a partner in a prosperous business. In bonds, you're nothing more than the nearest source of spare change. When you lend money to somebody, the best you can hope for is to get it back, plus interest. Unless you're a professional specializing in troubled companies and bankruptcies, the average person will never get a 10-bagger in a bond. Ah, yes, you say. But what about the risks? Aren't stocks riskier than bonds? Of course stocks are risky. Nowhere is it written that stocks owe you anything. Even blue-chip stocks held long-term can be risky. The point is, fortunes change. There's no assurance major companies won't become minor. There's no such thing as a can't-miss blue chip. Buy the right stocks at the wrong price at the wrong time, and you'll suffer great losses. Frankly, there is no way to separate investing from gambling when dealing with stocks and bonds. There is no absolute division between safe and risky places to store money. In the late 1920s, common stocks were finally considered prudent investments. This was exactly when the overvalued market made buying stocks more of a wager than an investment. Stocks have been embraced as investments or dismissed as gambles in circular fashion, usually at the wrong times. Remember, stocks are most likely to be accepted as prudent at the moment they are not. Once the risk is accepted, we can begin to separate gambling from investing by the skill and dedication of the participant. To the stock picker who rushes in and out of equities, an investment in stocks is no more reliable than betting on the prettiest horse. To me, an investment is simply a gamble in which you've managed to tilt the odds in your favor. It doesn't matter whether it's Atlantic City or the stock market. You can learn which companies are likely to grow and prosper by asking a few questions. Although you can never be certain what will happen, each new occurrence, such as a jump in earnings, will indicate your likelihood of success. People who succeed in the stock market accept periodic losses and unexpected occurrences. Calamitous drops don't scare them out of the game. If they've done the proper homework before investing in a company and suddenly it deteriorates, they accept it and look for the next company. They realize the stock market is not a pure science. If 7 out of 10 of my stocks perform as expected, I'm delighted. If 6 out of 10 of my stocks perform as expected, I'm thankful. Remember, 6 out of 10 is all it takes to produce an enviable record on Wall Street. The greatest advantage to investing in stocks is the incredible reward for being right. If one invests $1,000 in a stock and he or she is wrong, all you can lose is $1,000. But if you're right, you can make ten, twenty, dollars or $30,000 over a long period of time. Clearly, the stock market can be a gamble worth taking, as long as you know how to play the game. Chapter 4, Passing the Mirror Test If you find a stock that's a good investment, it doesn't mean you ought to own it. There's no point going any further until you've looked into the mirror. You should ask yourself three questions before you buy a share of anything. First, do I own a house? Second, do I need the money? And third, do I have the personal qualities that will bring me success in stocks? 
Whether stocks make good or bad investments depends more on your responses to these questions than anything you'll ever read in the Wall Street Journal. You should consider buying a house before you invest any money in stocks. A house is the one good investment almost everyone manages to make, and it is a money maker 99 times out of 100. Houses like stocks are most likely to be profitable when they're held for a long period of time. Unlike stocks, houses are likely to be owned by the same person for a number of years. You're a good investor in houses because you know how to poke around from the attic to the basement asking questions. Before you make an offer on a house, you hire experts to search for termites, roof leaks, dry rot, rusty pipes, faulty wiring, and cracks in the foundation. It's no wonder people make money in the real estate market and lose money in the stock market. They spend months choosing their houses and only minutes choosing their stocks. This brings us to the second question. Do I need the money? Review your budget before you buy stocks. For instance, if you're going to pay for a child's college education in a few years, don't put that money into stocks. In this instance, even buying blue chip stocks is too risky to consider. These stocks are relatively predictable over 10 to 20 years. As to whether they're going to be higher or lower in two to three years, well, you might as well flip a coin. Blue chips can fall and stay down for as long as five years. If you've invested in blue chips and the market hits a banana peel, well, your kid is going to go to night school. Maybe you're an older person living on a fixed income. Stay out of the stock market. There are lots of complicated formulas to figure out what percentage of your assets should be put into stocks, but mine is simple. It's the same for Wall Street as it is for the racetrack. Only invest what you could afford to lose without that loss having any effect on your daily life in the foreseeable future. The third question is the most important of the three. The list of personal qualities necessary for success include patience, self-reliance, common sense, open-mindedness, detachment, persistence, humility, flexibility, a willingness to do independent research, and equal willingness to admit to mistakes, and the ability to ignore general panic. Finally, it's crucial to be able to resist your human nature and your gut feelings. It's the rare investor who doesn't secretly harbor the conviction that he or she has the knack for predicting stock prices. It's uncanny how often we feel most strongly that stocks are going up when the opposite occurs. It's not that investors and their advisors are chronically stupid or unperceptive, it is that by the time the signal is received, the message may have changed. When enough positive financial news filters down so investors feel confident about the short-term prospect, the economy is about to be hammered. The trick is to discipline yourself to ignore your gut feelings. Stand by your stocks as long as the fundamental story of the company hasn't changed. If you can't, your only hope for increasing your net worth may be to adopt J. Paul Getty's surefire formula for financial success. Rise early, work hard, strike oil. Chapter 5. Is this a good market? Please don't ask. Each time after I've given a speech, somebody asks me if we're in a good or bad market. For every person who wants to know if Goodyear Tire is a solid or attractively priced company, four more want to know if the bull is alive and kicking. I always tell them the only thing I know about predicting markets is that each time I'm promoted, the market goes down. 
As soon as those words are launched from my lips, somebody else asks me when I'm due for another promotion. Obviously, you don't have to predict the stock market to make money in stocks. I've sat at my Quotron through some of the worst drops, and I couldn't have foreseen them if my life depended on it. In the middle of the summer of 1987, I didn't warn anybody, least of all myself, about the imminent 1,000-point decline. I learned in graduate school that the market goes up 9% a year. Since then, it's never gone up 9% in a year. I've yet to find a reliable source to tell me how much it will go up or down. Another theory is that we have recessions every five years. It hasn't happened. I've looked in the Constitution, and nowhere is it written that every fifth year we must have recession. I'd love to know when we're going into recession. Unfortunately, when Future Man comes to Boston, I'm always on the road. I'd be able to adjust my portfolio. Things are never clear until it's too late. We always seem to be preparing ourselves for the last thing that's happened. This penultimate preparedness is our way of making up for the fact we didn't see the last thing coming along in the first place. People began to worry the market was going to crash the day after the market crashed on October 19, 1987. It had crashed. We survived it, and now we were petrified there'd be a replay. Those who got out of the market to ensure they wouldn't be fooled the next time were fooled again as the market went up. I don't believe in predicting markets. I believe in buying great companies, especially undervalued or underappreciated companies. It doesn't matter where the Dow Jones Industrials average is. The market ought to be irrelevant. If I could convince you of this one thing, I feel this tape has done its job. I'd love to be able to predict markets and anticipate recessions. Since that's impossible, I'm satisfied to search out profitable companies. I've made money in lousy markets and lost money in great markets. Pick the right stocks and the market will take care of itself. I hope you'll remember the following points from this section on preparing to invest. Don't overestimate the skill and wisdom of professionals. Look for opportunities that haven't yet been discovered and certified by Wall Street. Invest in a house before you invest in a stock. Invest in companies, not in the stock market. Ignore short-term fluctuations. Large profits can be made in common stocks. Large losses can be made in common stocks. Predicting the economy is futile. Predicting the short-term direction of the stock market is futile. Long-term returns from stocks are relatively predictable and far superior to long-term returns from bonds. Common stocks aren't for everyone. The average person is exposed to interesting local companies and products years before the professional. Having an edge will help you make money in stocks.